Hey, welcome to In My Opinion. Let me put my folks on the line. Love Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to In My Opinion. This is Kara Live. I'm host co-hosting tonight with Stephen. Yeah, hey, Stephen, are you there? Hey, Stephen, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Kara. Hey, uh, take one, Ethridge. I'm here. How you guys doing? Here. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Brandon Andrews and the other part of the team will be listening to your trip uh, to Lane Patrick. And Terry Jones, this is the In My Opinion. We join forces to do the television segment by the segment In My Opinion. Uh, I hear an echo, I'm sorry, guys. Our broadcast are designed to educate and stimulate discussion. Uh, we may have a different opinion, but we can unite to make a change. So tonight's topic is mass incarceration, the epidemic of violence and drugs. We have uh, two special guests. I think one is already on the line, is Nal Fort. And Nal Fort is the author of an article published in the Harvard Journal of African American Public Policy called Prisons, Pot, and Profit, the Plight of Post-Emancipation. He's the youth pastor at the First Baptist Church of Lincoln Gardens, in Newark, New Jersey, and a graduate student at Princeton Seminary. Hello, now. Are you there? I'm here. Thank you for hey, having how me. How are you doing? Great to have you. And we'll have, I think, later on, I hope he joins us, is Yusef Shakur, and he's from Detroit. He's the author of The Window to My Soul, and his latest work is Restoring the Neighbor Back to the Hood. Um, he also, if you... If this ever showing in your area, every screen in your area, he has a documentary about himself called Detroit's Native Son. Um, and hopefully yourself will join us in a few. Um, so let me start. Oh, let me go back one more thing. Um, uh, oh, never mind. So let's start the discussion. Um, and first I'll tell the audience how, I, how we derived at this topic of mass incarceration. Um, last month I was um, at the Black Policy Conference at Harvard, and I missed the session on the epidemic of violence, but I saw Yusef's documentary. And while I was watching the documentary, I realized that I was oblivious to the plight of incarceration. And personally, I've never given a lot of thought about how the U.S. prison system began or the growth of the system. Um, and then while back, while I got up, well, when I was leaving and I was on my flight from D.C. to Boston, I mean, yeah, from D.C., back to D.C. from Boston, I was reading this article, um, which was written by now, who we have on the show tonight. And the article, again, is called Prisons, Pot, and Profit, The Flight of Post-Emancipation. And um, one of the things that intrigued me about the article was the historic aspect of the prison system, and maybe that's where our discussion should begin. So um, I'm, a, I'm a lover of history, but I had not done a lot of research on this subject until you know I read Nal's piece. So I'll let Nal tell us about his findings regarding prisons prior to the abolition of slavery and the development of the prison system. 
and that's a lot now. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and uh, I guess let me start by uh, giving a caveat. I'm not a historian, um, so uh, if there if there are any historians listening, please bear with me. Um, but I but I will say a few things that I that I do know um, based on my readings and my research. Um, as I frame in my article, I think it's important when we think about and talk about mass incarceration and the proliferation of our prison system here in the U.S., it's important to have a sort of historical grounding and to start at the right place. Um, So for me, um, as I do in my article, I start with slavery, Um, and I think that's where we find the seminal um, beginnings of where mass incarceration came from, um, where, where what it's connected to, and I think making those connections are extremely important. Uh, so basically, after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which uh, many of us know uh, was signed on January 1st, uh, 1860, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, that was signed on January 1st, 1863, um, and there was a sort of, um, you know, de jure, de, jure, um, uh, de jure emancipation of the slaves, although we know that uh, it was, for many slaves it was not a reality, it was simply a document. Um, there um, was a lot of hoopla about what, what to do uh, with, with these newly freed slaves. Um, and more specifically, after the passing, after Congress ratified the 13th Amendment, which was um, came out of the Emancipation Proclamation um, in 1865, um, there, there I believe is where we begin to see a the spring, the springing up um, of prisons, specifically in the South. Um, so we see the the freedmen. Um, the slaves that were, uh, you know, former slaves and now they're free, um, being put back into a prison system through um, what historians have come to call the convict leasing system. Um, and, and the convict leasing system is very interesting because it was pretty much, in, in, in not too many words, it was a, a new way to maintain um, the old system. Um, and, you know, white southern plantation owners basically purchased prisoners to live on their property and work under their control, uh, many times in harsher conditions than slavery. Um, you know, during this time, prisoners were literally purchased. They were leased, um, as, as the euphemism goes, uh, for, for numerous jobs. I mean, we're talking coal mining, iron forging, steel making, and railroad building, and, and a host of other things. Um, so I think when we, I mean, you hear people say uh, slaves built this country, um, well, that's some kind of actual context to that statement and to that cliche. Um, we, it, it is quite true. And I think when we, what we see after the 13th Amendment was passed with a convict leasing system in place, we see a way of maintaining slavery, except now um, it is legal. And I think it's important to know how that is, is now legal and was legal because if you read the 13th Amendment, as I'm sure um, many of us know, it actually uh, it allows for a certain kind of carceral slavery. Um, you know, it says that um, basically 
slavery is not allowable except for the punishment of a crime. That is literally a part of the 13th Amendment. So that is very interesting to see how slavery, in one sense, I can't say ended, but uh, on paper it was declared to be over, yet there's a huge caveat even within that document that allows and enables for a certain kind of carceral slavery, uh, slavery to continue in the prison systems. Um, so I think that's 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 where um, we can trace it back. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm not a historian. I'm sure <laughs> some historians can do a much better job of articulating that and framing it. But for me, and in the article that I wrote, that's where I basically began, uh, where we see the, the the beginnings of the carceral situation here in America. Um, so, so basically, when the slavery system ended, then the prison system began. Is is what I'm hearing. From from my readings and research, prior to um, the Thirteenth Amendment, and probably more specifically the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, the the prison system as we know it did not exist. Um, there was punishment, there was corporal punishment, um, and uh, you know. But but as far as a very systematic, organized prison system um, with uh, a significant amount of the population um, incarcerated, uh, it, it just did not exist prior to the uh, ratification of the Thirteenth Amendment. Uh, we see that the actual building of the prison system, I believe, um, after the 13th Amendment was ratified. It was it was a sort of uh, white backlash to uh, black reconstruction, um, right? I mean, we have progress um, in one sense, um, and we have a, a very serious backlash and, and always the question of what to do with the Negro. And the answer, uh, for the most part, <laughs> was to uh, keep them enslaved uh, through prison labor. So it's almost like, you know, we, we think about indentured servants, uh, which still was to me a, a form of slavery because some of those people never stopped being indentured servants. So it was like an either-or situation is what I'm hearing in, in that particular time period. Right. I, I mean, I think there are, there are some uh, connections that can be made uh, with indentured servitude. Um, at the same time, I think that um, – it was very much, and in many cases from my readings, it was a lot of times could be even harsher than slavery itself. Um, it was it was uh, a space of unfreedom. Um, it was it was a space where you had absolutely no rights, where um, slavery was legalized in the same way that slavery was prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so while it's comparable, perhaps, uh, um, and maybe there's a good argument for that, um, I think that I would still want to hold it in a sort of distinct space and uh and say that it was uh it was just slavery. <laughs> quite you know, quite quite plain. But it was it was just slavery in a new form. So let's address going back to something else you, you brought up, the um the convict leasing system. Um, yes. and Basically, how how did that work? And I guess we're still talking about the same thing because if I'm hearing that, it's still like indentured servants, right? Well, and, and, um, and I guess I guess now, I mean, it's it's more of a corporate entity versus I guess it was in the late 1800s, but still 
all in all, it's just still the same same result. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think why I'm hesitant to tie it too closely to indentured servitude is because I wouldn't want us to forget about the racialized nature of the convict leasing system, of the prison system today, and of course of slavery. So I think that racial dynamic, um, and, and like, again, I wasn't even a history major in undergrad, uh, so I hope some of our listeners maybe can call in and, and, and challenge me on this point or confirm what I'm saying. Um, but I think the racial dynamic of the convict leasing system specifically and the prison system presently um, and slavery just in general, is it, it makes it sort of distinct, right? It's not, it's not simply, um, you know, just poor folk who are trapped in a system of essentially economic, you know, slavery. It, it is very racially grounded and racially perpetuated and reproduced um, in a way that I think can't be ignored. So, and while, like, again, I would say there, there, there are comparisons, but I would want to still hold it in a distinct state okay. because, because of that racial dynamic, because of that racialized nature. Okay, somebody has your female again. You have to turn your volume down on your computer. All right, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, um, yeah, so that I mean that's that's basically all. I think I think we can't forget about the racialized nature. A lot of folks want to forget about the racialized nature of even mass incarceration today. But it would be uh, doing um, the analysis a disservice by by taking out of the racial context. So I'm not sure if I'm answering that question or uh, if I'm helping, but that's kind of the way I see it right now. I see. No, uh, let me let me let me ask you a question. As far as the 21st century is concerned, do you see, I guess, tangible evidence of the same scenario playing out in today's prisons? Like, do you see let's say, uh, a, a mass of prisoners being used in some form of initial servitude or having um, or basically being leased out to, if not corporations, to private entities that you saw, you know, in the early um, 19th century and post-reconstruction? Because a lot of people may challenge the fact that, well, hey, yeah, you know, historically the United States did use um, prisoners as a form of like slave labor, as a form of chattel, but you don't see, you know, the prison chain gang that a lot of people could equate this to in the 21st century. So if you can, give an example of where you see this happening, you know, modernly. Right. Uh, that, and that's a that's a loaded question. It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, perhaps I can start with a very specific example, um, and then maybe we can work towards uh, some more kind of uh, general, you know, discussion. The largest for for profit prison industry in America, CCA Corrections Corporation of America, a Tennessee-based private prison company, uh, was awarded more than three hundred million dollars in government contracts just last year. That's the first part. Now, when we look at that in the light of the fact that in certain states, certain inmates make literally 93 cents an hour. Um, I think, I mean, whether we want to compare it to indentured servitude or just plain out slavery, I think it's hard to argue that it's not a continuation of the same kind of both economic and racialized um, oppression that is just continuing from, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the, the 19th century to, to today. Um so that's, that's a very specific example. Uh, many scholars and activists have come to call this phenomena 
the prison industrial complex where they're locating a specific kind of um, a happening that is connecting prisons to a profit um, and where, where convicts literally become um, a sort of a way for, for corporations to make money um, in the same way that um, it happened, or a similar way, I, I should say, rather, um, that it happened um, during slavery. So although we live in a very um, different-looking world, right, um, there was no Corrections Corporation of America um, in the 19th century. Um, however, there were plantations, and there were uh, there was the same kind of system where you were using cheap labor, um, or at that time it was literally free labor, um, to to make profit. And uh, we all know the, the, the history of this country and how it was built on that kind of legacy and that kind of reality. And uh, so I, th- I think when we look at it in that sense, um, when we look at it as, as the prison industrial complex, as um, a way for corporations to uh, literally make money off of prisoners and pay them re- nearly nothing, they have uh, little, literally no rights, um, you know, um, then, then, then it's, a, it's a clear comparison. Um, and, and it's funny because a lot of folks um, are wondering where the jobs went. <laughs> and, and, yes, a lot of the jobs did go overseas, um, you know, to Southern America and to China and to other places where people are desperate to work for money and they'll, they'll take cheaper wages. Um, but, but, but a lot of times people miss the fact that a lot of the jobs actually have gone into the prison system, um, now, I, whether it's um, – yes. Now, this is Stephen Reese. I had a question about CCA. I'm from Tennessee, so I'm somewhat familiar with it. So uh, I was wondering how you felt about the fact that legislators who write the laws can actually hold stock in CCA who actually incarcerate the people who break the laws. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that just goes to show um you know how big business and government are um I mean some folks stay in bed together or they just simply have a um a symbiotic relationship, you know. Um it, it goes to show how closely tied legislation and law and politics is to profit and money making. Um, and it goes to show the sort of corruption that can easily happen when you have that kind of power. Um, and unfortunately, it's always at the expense of the of those that are at the bottom of the totem pole. It's always at the expense of black and brown folk. It's always at the expense of poor folk. It's always at the expense of, you know, um, those who are who who are producing. So I think that's a very good point, and I think that that's something that, a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but some scholars are pointing out and some, some people, everyday folk are, are pointing out that, that we need to pay more attention to. The, 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 why, why is it that a politician can have that kind of uh, power to, um, you know, to, to literally legislate um, law in a way to, um, to, to towards the interests of big business? It's a, it's, a, it's a problem that we're having not just in our prison system, but in, in all in all facets, in my opinion, of politics. I mean, even the fact that you have to uh, raise an astronomical amount of money to become president of the United States. What does that mean, and how is that connected to this? So I think that you're raising a really good point that we, we also need to address is how legislation plays into this. 
and how politicians have often literally built their careers off of tough-on-crime rhetoric. We can look at Ronald Reagan and his, you know, infamous, uh, you know, welfare babies and crack, crack mothers and, and, and his tough-on-crime rhetoric. And, you know, we can, we can trace that even to Bill Clinton and his three strikes and you're out, <laughs> you know. So it, it, we, we literally have a political atmosphere where people are getting votes by putting folk in prison. Um, and, and, just and, and, and let me point out yeah. really quick, and I'll let you go. Let me just point out: most of these folks that are being put in prison are being put in prison for nonviolent uh, offenses. Nonviolent. That was going to be my next question. Possession. Yes, that's my next question. Now, what do you propose that we do with people who break the law? I understand that there are social and economic factors that play into. Uh, I guess, the the situations that would lead one to be on the wrong side of the law. But what is your suggestion of how we handle these types of people? We can't just allow them to willy-nilly break the law because at the end of the day, we send our legislators to represent us, and we allow them to write the laws that hold our neighbors as criminals. So what's your What's your, uh, I guess, your remedy yeah. to the fact that that, uh, that the criminal justice system is somewhat industrialized and somewhat corrupt? What do you offer as a potential remedy to that fact without allowing well, criminals to walk free? Yeah. Um, well, let's look at how it works now. Um, and maybe I should give some statistics to kind of ground us in our thinking and our discussion that we can see exactly, because some folks are under the impression that um, the criminal justice system right now uh, focuses on criminals or, or serious criminals. Um, but that, that is actually just, it, it's simply not the reality. Um, the reality is that, like I said, most folks who are arrested, who are in prison, incarcerated, um, actually are in there for a nonviolent uh, offense, um, such as marijuana possession. Um, and that is actually one of the most popular ways to get locked up and to get in prison. So uh, first, I think we need to frame this correctly. Um, and we need, to, we need to say that um, we, need to, we, need to be, we need to be interpreting what's happening in its proper light, because most folks think that everyone in prison is in there for murder or rape or, or some kind of serious offense. But the reality is, um, of course, that they're not. Um, And I'll give you some statistics. In 2000, African Americans throughout seven states uh, constituted 80 to 90 percent of all drug offenders into prison. Um, In at least 15 states, African Americans are admitted to prison on drug charges at a rate from 20 to 57 times greater than that of white men. And although the majority of illegal drug users and dealers are white, and this is according to Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, 75% 75% of all prisoners convicted for drug offenses are African-American or Latino. Let me just give a few more. Out of the 2.7 million prisoners, 500,000 are nonviolent drug offenders. I'm not good at math, but that's somewhere a quarter, a little less than a quarter, almost one in out of every four. Um, a mathematician will, will probably shoot me, but it, it's almost one in out of every four. 500,000 out of the 2.7 million are in there for nonviolent drug offenses, and the majority of them being arrested for simple marijuana possession. 
Um, in the 1990s, marijuana accounted for approximately 80% of all growth in drug arrests. And in 2005, four out of every five drug arrests were for possession rather than distribution. That is 80%. 80% of drug arrests in 2005 were for possession. So I think we need to frame how we view prisoners, how we view the criminal justice system, how we view what police are doing. Um, um, we all know that, you know, um, yeah, most 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 people that are arrested are not arrested for from violent crimes, um, or at least a significant amount of them. We can say factually say that they are arrested for nonviolent offenses. So I think that framing needs to be right, um, and I think we need to um, um, destigmatize uh, a lot of folks that are, are actually incarcerated, and then we need to be honest about what the uh, police forces and, and legislation are actually doing. Um, and they it's so many of call these folks. Go ahead. Criminal, you say something? I'm sorry. Not necessarily. It sounds like you're saying decriminalized, not necessarily destigmatized, because you know I'm I'm just saying devil's advocate. We're all aware of of the law as it is, and no one's forcing anyone to break the law. And I don't know exactly what to do with someone who ends up on the wrong side of the law. Speak up this is bad, Stephen. I mean, it's kind of bad. Yeah, that's that's bad. Can you hear me now? Yes. I can hear you. It sounds like you're saying more not necessarily destigmatize, but decriminalize certain things. And the way it stands now, you know, we, most of us are aware of the laws. And and I personally believe that there has to be some type of accountability for one's actions, I understand if there's something else at play, like mental health or or some type of adverse SES or socioeconomic status factors that are in play, but we we still haven't addressed the core issue. Okay. And what's the so core issue for you? Excuse me? I, I said, what is the core issue uh, for you? The the core issue for me is accountability is one of them. You know, we we all know that racism exists. We all know that there are adverse conditions out there, and the what the state of the law is is the state of the law. I mean, I think perhaps we need to look at perhaps decriminalizing some of these offenses as opposed to destigmatizing them alone. Oh yeah, no, I, I I'm I'm totally actually in my article I have a section called decriminalization. I. I you know, that that was just a part of my response to what I thought I was hearing as a kind of stigmatization of criminals. But I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that it's important, um, and, you, you know, you mentioned law. I think it's important to interpret law uh, also historically. Slavery was legal. It was a part of our legal system. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Crow was legal. Segregation was legal. Lynching, all these things were a part of our actual legal system. It was okay to do these things. Uh, it was not a crime, um, you know. So I think that even when we look at law itself, we have to be very critical of it, and we cannot simply accept it as uh, as, as something that we ought to abide by. It's something that we have to be critical of, and like we ought to be critical of everything. Um, so I think that, that that's a very good point. I, I, I do believe uh, that we need to decriminalize marijuana. It's a, it's a section in my paper. Um, 
and I'm with you on that. I, I think we also need to destigmatize, but of course they're both very important. I mean, I, I would want us to to, de- to decriminalize uh, marijuana. It would, it would it would reduce the prison population, at, you know, astronomically. Um, and and, well, it would, and well. so. Yeah, uh, hey, uh, you got Yusuf Yeah, I was getting ready to introduce you. <laughs> okay. We have Yusuf on the line now. Yusuf is out of Detroit. He's the author again of. The Wind Into My Soul, and the author of his latest work is Neighbor, Restoring the Neighbor Back to the Hood. Uh, welcome, you, uh, Yusef. Uh, thank you. I apologize for my tardiness. Uh, and actually, this is probably a good segue. Um, I know that um, Nal just gave us some stats, but I had a clip on some stats, and we can segue to the prison system today. Uh, this will last probably about a minute or so. The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trials and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. No single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. Okay, that was some interesting stats, and I'm glad to have uh, Yusef on the line now. I know that you and now actually met at the Students Against Mass Incarceration National Conference that was here in D.C., I think, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yes. And it's a good segue to, I think, it, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first national conference that they had. And I was just wondering if you could tell us what the the goal of the conference was and what happened at the conference, what the objectives were. Um, I can't say what was the goal. Actually, I, I was brought in by uh, some formerly formerly incarcerated folks that I was a friend of a friend who worked with uh, Eddie Conway, who was a politi- political prisoner. Um, just just off the top of my head, I mean, you know, it was about bringing awareness. But unfortunately, a lot of it is really connected to a lot of this cliche, these uh, slogans, mass incarceration, prison industrial complex, which they have they have uh, meaning. However, the, the, the meaning is not really connecting to you know, the black oppression, the black exploitation. Um, you know, 13th Amendment, need to say, no voluntary servitude shall exist 
a chef has a punishment for a crime. So when we're talking about ending mass incarceration, if we're not talking about ending black oppression, you know, we're 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 losing sight on the on the bigger goal. You know, mass incarceration grew out of black oppression. Oh, I see. Um, Okay, I was looking to see if Stephen had a question because he's typing to me. Um, And if I can just make a point, uh, the, the conference, from my understanding, and I'm also not an official member of SAMI, um, so I'm speaking as um, someone who's close to the organization but not a member, but from my understanding it was the first and it was a historic event, and uh, it was a, par- a partially to organize students, a, a critical mass of students, to address the issues of black oppression in the context of mass incarceration, black oppression in the context of prison industrial complex um, and, um, and, and the war on drugs specifically and, and, and a host of other things. Um, and it, 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 it's really brought awareness. It also allowed us spaces to organize as, as students, activists, folks who are, have been incarcerated. And it was a very eclectic group of folk who got together um, and um, uh, it, it was mainly to organize around these things so that we won't just keep complaining, but that we will begin to um, begin to, to do more. I mean, it was, you know, to add on that, the person that was there, I mean, it made great steps, but again, uh, you know, for, I'm a part of a group called Formerly Incarcerated and Convicted People's Movement. Uh, one of the things that we initiate is speaking in our own voices. Unfortunately, a lot of the folks who, who are having these conversations don't have the folks who are at the table. Uh, for myself, I was able to be a part of the panel on the war on drugs or something like that. And basically, I had to, we had to force myself to be a part of it through, the, through my comrades that was there, um, based upon because they didn't know who I was. Um, I did nine years in prison. My father's done 30 years in prison. My uncle did 16 years in prison. So when you add that up, um, my, my credentials speak for itself when you look at the, 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 the oppression within our community the impact that we had. So, again, when folks are talking about talking conversation, we have to take it from the classrooms to the community and vice versa, but we have to have our fingers on the pulse of what's really going on. Those those students should be applauded, but the work has to go beyond just those those walls. I agree. Well, Stephen Reese, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked now earlier. Uh, we were talking about, before you got on the line, we were talking about a, destigmatizing and also decriminalizing some offenses, particularly non-violent offenses. And um, and I'm online now, and it's probably part of the feedback you guys get. And I got a question from one of our callers, and her question was, even if we decriminalize, what do we do with the current amount of inmates that are in prison now for nonviolent crimes? Do you suggest we just release those people who broke the law, or what are you? What's your suggestion? Use up their now. I mean, I mean, for me, I, I mean, that's a tricky question, man. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't recognize the, the legitimacy of America. I see it as an illegal empire. I see those who who, who govern, run this country. They, they are, they are the real criminals. They should be locked up. So when you when you break it up, I mean, like for myself. I was convicted of assault with intent to rob unarmed. So that's a that's a violent crime. But more important, that was a crime I did not commit. So when, so when we break it up like that, 
So we say we're going to let all the guys out who had none of it, none of sort of uh, cases. What about the guys that did? They don't, I mean, and what about the social assault that has been taken upon them through the economic violence and the political violence? So, you know, we really have have a deeper analysis to what's really going on, in particular understanding you know, black black oppression. But also, again, I understand the argument, well, those niggas crazy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, but it, it's just, you know, it's oppression, the, the, the assault on the mind that's contributing to the better behavior, and we, and we really have to get back to organizing and doing the work in our community. You know, at the height of the civil rights movement, the height of the black power movement, the crime of our community wasn't where it's at because we was organizing. We was fighting against the justice. Once they ripped out our community, crime became what it is in the criminalization of black, the black male and, and the black community. Um, okay, okay Nile. Yeah. Um, let me let me first say that um, I find it interesting, and I, I have these conversations a lot, and I, th- I think it is, um, it, you know, it, it's a question that, that needs to be addressed. I, I, unfortunately, I, I think, or not unfortunately, but I think that, that there are other questions that are, just just to be honest, a little bit more important at this time. And, and to be quite honest, um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a, a law student, nor nor am I a lawyer, uh, and, and okay. I can only speak to what I what I do know. I won't I won't try to bluff. Um, but but what I do know is that by decriminalizing marijuana in particular. Um, by treating it as a medical issue rather than a criminal issue, it would drastically decrease the population of prisoners that are going into the prison system. Um, what to do with those that are already in, I would want to get a group of legal scholars together or folks like that who know how to work law. I don't know how to do that right now. Um, so I can't answer that question um, to that sense, but I can say that by by, by focusing too much on that question, well, well what's going to happen with the folks that are in there, I think it misses out on the larger part, part fact that they shouldn't be there in the first place. And let me give you uh, just, you know, I go, I go to Princeton. Um, there's more drugs at Princeton than, where I, than, than the block I live on in North New Jersey. I live in North New Jersey. I live in, uh, you know, I live in the belly of the beast, but I go to Princeton, I, and I see more drugs at Princeton than I do on my block. So the point is, is that there is, and I don't want us to overlook the racial dynamics here. I don't want us to, to, why aren't the police raiding the dorms at Princeton where I go to school? Why are they raiding the block where I live? I think we have to ask that question, um, and we have to be very intentional and careful in our analyses and even in the questions that we ask. So what should we do with those prisoners? I don't know. I think that's that's a question that can be addressed along the way. But I think the more important questions are why in the hell are these folks who carry marijuana on them in a dungeon, in a cage, in, in, in being treated like animals because they had a, 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 a drug on them? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's absurd. And it's not just about marijuana because I don't want to stop it there. Any drug should be treated as a public health issue. It is not a crime. You're not a criminal when you're either addicted to drugs, you have uh, drugs on you, or you're selling drugs. You, it, it is a public health issue. It's something that is not uh, unique to the black community or the brown community. All folks, white, black, brown, um, according to Michelle Alexander's book, there is no, there's no um, disproportionality between races in using drugs or selling drugs. If, in fact, there is, it would be that white folks sell and use drugs at a higher rate. But that is not no, the way I would, we think that's I would not the ideology. Argue, 
I don't. There's not an argument here about the medical nature of substance abuse and how people self-medicate. But I would have to take issue with you whether or not you say people who sell drugs are not criminals. That's that to me. That's a separate issue. I don't see those people who sell drugs as as, as ones who are necessarily victims of society. Perhaps there are economic reasons that that push them or which led them to feel that they should engage in that practice, but I don't think that they necessarily are self-medicating at the same rate as people who use drugs for their mental health issues or use drugs recreationally. Well, also, kind of like, just to go back with what Steven said, you know, there are certain there are certain drugs that we could argue that do have a medicinal purpose currently. Now, you know, obviously, for instance, with, with drugs like any opiate, like cocaine, you know, back in the day that was used uh, for medical reasons until the more harmful effects were studied and the drug was outlawed. But something like marijuana, I, I've always agreed that, that black male incarceration rates due to marijuana are one of the reasons why our incarceration rates are the highest. And when you decriminalize that recreational drug, the use of that recreational drug, it, like you said, it will decrease our numbers in the criminal justice system dramatically. But for a second, I want to go back to the actual economics of, of um, incarceration. I had a question uh, for one of my friends. For the laymen who will want to witness um, incarcerated um, black men or women or really incarcerated people's wherever, actually being put to work for profit. What industries would you actually see this? Would you see this in the textiles? Would you see this in the railroads, construction? Would you see this, you know, the Burger King or what have you? Where would you actually get the pinpoint individuals who are incarcerated, but they're being used for profit? Um, yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Um, the for-profit prisons industry is one of the most lucrative industries in the country right now. As I said, CCA has made $300 million in contracts in the government last year. But to answer your question specifically, there are a host of companies that use uh, prison labor. Um, and you can do your own research, and uh, you can find it online, but uh, specifically some that I know, Starbucks, Victoria's Secrets, um, 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 phone Industries, Global Tel Link, was sold for $1 billion to a private equity firm in New York. $1 billion, the most popular uh, phone industry <laughs> in the prison system was sold for $1 billion. That says a lot mm-hmm. about our and, – and then there was an effort, there was an effort, uh, a, a phenomenon going on where they were charging exorbitant amounts for these prisoners to reach their families, which actually helped them, which makes no sense. It's counterproductive to a so-called rehabilitative system, right? They were charging families $15 for a five-minute call, to, you know, a, a, it's just ridiculous amounts of money to talk to folks, which made it harder for them, which makes it harder for us. So, I mean, it's not just about just those that are incarcerated. It's about their families. It's about their daughters. It's about their sons. It's about their mothers, you know. Um, so um, there are other companies as well, and some are, some are leaving my mind right now. You can look up some online, but uh, I know Starbucks. I know Victoria's Secret. Uh, who else um, can come to my mind? But, and the Global Tel Link was sold for a billion dollars. Um, if you look at it, it's funny because as, as far as the convict leasing system, the Angola prison in Louisiana is a, is a sort of modern manifestation of the convict leasing system. You, uh, I've never been myself, but I've seen pictures and I've seen videos of the Angola prison system, the infamous Louisiana State Prison, and, um, you know, 
the, the prisoners there have a rodeo and folk come and they get entertained and the, the, the prison makes a lot of money off of you know, the, the prisoners. Like I said, in certain states, some prisoners make as little as 93 cents an hour. And it's not just how much they make. It's the fact that they, they're not allowed to unionize. They're not allowed to organize. They uh, are always on time. They are under uh, a sort of... Um, a sort of martial law at all. Well, the argument to that would be they're prisoners. Uh, we could discuss right. exactly how we can discuss no, 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 the various no, no, ways that they got here later. Let me cut you off really quick. They're humans first. Let's say that. They're humans that are incarcerated. That's a very important way to frame it. Um, it doesn't I mean, make a huge difference. Wait, well, I mean, let me. Let me the, the, the fact that, that, we, that we're debating that right there shows how we've all been brainwashed and looking at it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a byproduct of black oppression. And so we've legalized in our mind, okay, a guy committed this crime. I mean, I've been to prison. The, low, the, mo, the, the most I, or the least I ever made was 19 cents being a janitor. The most I ever made was 43 cents working in, working in the kitchen. You got guys stabbing each other to make 99 cents to work in the factory. Where you talking about, uh, but they're making furniture. And all other type of things where you're making thousands and thousands of dollars that's going back out. But, again, we're not talking about the real issue. When you're talking about marijuana, I mean, I've been to prison. Most guys are not in prison because of marijuana itself, but the fact they may have used it and, and, it, and it impaired their ability to think that caused them to do some of the things. So we had to get to the real issue of the lack of resources that's within our, within, or lacking within our community that's contributing to the behavior that we see. I, there, there is room Steven, to agree uh, that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Steven. I'm sorry. You said this is Stephen. Okay, we're going to take the the the, the self medicators or the people who use drugs off the table. There are still other people in jail who have committed crimes, and I know that I have family members who've been in jail. Full disclosure. So I, there's not an argument whether or not these people are human or not. My issue is about accountability. If you're going to be wait, 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 an active what do you, what do you member mean, of you, that, let me you, get my question out. I'm going to get my question What do you mean by accountability? If you're, if, you're be, be if you're going to be, I'm going to explain it. If you're going to be an active member of this society, there are laws that members of this society abide by. If we need to change the laws, that's a separate issue. But in order to be an active participant in this society, Man. Every right has a responsibility. If you break laws, brother, there are consequences. Man, you put, man, I mean, excuse you my friend, man, that's bullshit. Man. That's bullshit, man. My, my citizenship, my so-called citizenship was forced on me through the 13th Amendment that says neither slavery nor voluntary servitude shall exist except as a punishment for a crime. So the same law that's supposed to abolish slavery legalized slavery. So when you look at the, the 2.5 million over Half of them are black, you know, where you can't get jobs in your community, where you can't go get uh, education. What, what else you think I'm going to do? And you you telling me, for, uh, trying to force me that I'm supposed to buy, play by the rules? The rules never played by me. I think the, the, the you know, discussion is, is meandering towards this. There, There's a trade-off. For, for this. Now, for instance, like you said, you, you humanize the prisoners because they are human first, but at the same time, they are prisoners. Agreed. So my question is, where does responsi- personal responsibility begin? Where does you know responsibility to society at large begin, whether you agree with the society that you're living in or not? 
for instance, in New Orleans, we used to see um, non-violent offenders that would take them and they would, like, clean up the um, the shoulders or the overpasses, things like that. They're picking up trash. So a lot of people was like, okay, well, we, we feel that's a that's an adequate um, trade-off for whatever non-violent offense put you in Orleans Parish Prison in the first place, right? So we know you're there for a finite amount of time. So while you're there, you, you're basically doing a community service to the community that you wrong. then you go your merry way. I think there's a fine line between that versus what Niles is discussing and what versus what, you know, the economics of the new economics of slavery right. as far as incarceration is concerned, right. where you actually have individuals doing hard labor for, you know, a penance, for a salary. Now, don't get me wrong. I personally do not feel that anyone. I mean, you're in prison for a reason. Whether you know for the for let's and let's just use the broader you know, the broader term that majority of the people that we're talking about, we know that they're convicted felons for whatever they did, and they quote unquote deserve to be there. I don't expect anyone in prison to get a salary, but at the same time, I don't expect anyone in, in prison to be dehumanized where they can't take care of themselves. So I think there's there's kind of a, a cost benefit analysis here. There's a very fine line between you know, you paying your debt to society versus you being pretty much treated as an indentured servant or a slave. Okay, let me, let me, I don't know, I'm listening, I don't know if any of y'all have been to prison, right? I've been no, there. No, I have not. I have this in quite a few I've been there, I did nine years, right? And I want to paint a picture. Okay. The majority of the prisons across this country are built in white rural areas. Majority of the prisons are standing on probably where it was swap land. So this, so this prison that they build becomes an economic base for that community. It has yeah, a family right. generation that comes in and works in this prison. If they can't get a job nowhere else, they're guaranteed to work in this prison. I mean, 90% of the folks who work these prisons are white with racist mentality. So this prison was structured in white supremacy. Majority of the guys who are getting sentenced and convicted didn't have a chance in the fucking first place. A, a, a court-appointed lawyer that was unqualified to, to represent them, whether they did the crime or not. So you talking about guys in the, okay. in the city of Detroit? Okay. Over eighty percent of the schools have been closed. Over fifty percent of the recreations have been closed. So why wouldn't you expect the motherfucker to go commit a crime? As a recreation, right. okay. there's no resources. And, and, and let me say, let me say this. Let me, let me, let me just jump in. Um, I, you know, there's, there's been a historic dialogue between this kind of uh, narrative between personal responsibility and systemic violence. Um, and what we have to realize, what we have to come to grips with, is that, you. first of all, let me say this. We're not asking white folks to be personally responsible. Like I said, the statistics show, facts show, this is not, this is not just emotion. You, you, you're talking about the statistics. Let me finish. 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 Let me, let me just that's disrespectful to, 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 to on the backs of those who are, who are suffering right now, man. Who my brother, my brother. My brother. Let him finish the point. Let him finish the point. My brother, my brother. I got three brothers and sisters. They all been in jail, bro. I've been there. I've seen it. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I haven't been to prison myself. You ain't seen it. You ain't, ain't, ain't lived it, man. I, you ain't I, lived I, I, it. You talking, you talking from, from behind the desk, man. Okay. I'm talking from being in there. Bro, bro. Let him finish the point. So, so my, bro, re- my rehabilitation came in there because of my father. Bro, let me let me If it wasn't for my father, I still would be a criminal. I'm with I'm with you. Yes, I'm with you, but but I, I can't you know, I can't I can't let you silence me. You can't I'm you, 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 you ain't gonna let me do a motherfucking thing because the fact of the matter is we're talking about liberation. If it wasn't for my fucking father, I still would be a gang member waiting to beat one of your asses. 
He taught me how to love myself and take personal responsibility of coming home and doing what I do in my community. You have to be clear when you talk about personal responsibility. Let's, now, that's a good thing that you just The whole narrative between second, personal responsibility and systemic violence is interesting to me. Why it's interesting mm-hmm. to me is because the, the reality is white folks <laughs> commit just as many crimes or more than black folks, but we're telling black folks to be more personally responsible. I don't understand that. Yeah. Like I said, I, 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 you know, when I go to school, you, if, the, if the police went there, all of them, a lot of them will be in prison, but they don't go there. Why don't they go there? Why do they go to the street corner rather than the college campus? Well, let me let me let me ask you let me ask you, let me ask you a question let, before they make your can point. Can I just finish? Can I just finish, please? No, because you you making a great finish. point. We, I know, even so when they get, even, even when they get arrested, what happens to them? Yeah, I mean, so so the point is the point is we're asking something of black folk that we're not asking of all folk, and the point and, and the even deeper point is you cannot respond to systemic violence with a personal responsibility agenda. It, it doesn't make any sense. And, and, and okay, also, can, can I that, clarify dismiss, my, wait, my let, let me just finish. Let me just finish. It dismisses the fact okay, that black folk are personally responsible, and I know those folks because I'm one of them and I live amongst them. So I don't like that narrative. I, I, I really don't. I don't like that Cosby kind of mentality, that, that, that Oprah kind of, well, why don't y'all just stop smoking weed? Why don't y'all just stop, you know, drinking, you know, drinking on the coke? Why don't y'all stop doing all this crime? When the reality is that we're not doing it any more than nobody else, but we're getting locked up for it more than everybody else. Why is that? Let's address the systemic okay, issue. Well, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me ask this question, because you, you said that, and okay. some friends of mine were talking about something to that fact. Yeah, and a friend of mine and I were talking to the fact because we know being black or being of color in this country that we're under a larger microscope, wouldn't it stand a reason that we should have that much more scrutiny to our behaviors, even even if it's not fair that they're not asking you know, our white counterparts yes, to do sir. the same? But why we not know remove the microscope? We, why not remove the microscope? Why not remove? Why are we asking our? Oh, just keep the microscope. That's unjust. That's violent. That's unfair. I want to remove, destroy the microscope. The microscope. I don't want to. Oh, okay. Oh, please let 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 let's be okay so we don't get locked up. No, let's remove the microscope that's surveilling us. That is that is that is attacking us. That is having a specific kind of agenda to keep us down. Why why don't we respond by saying, oh, you know what? Let's get our shit together. No, we have to respond by saying, destroy the microscope. I agree with you. There's a microscope, but my response is destroy the microscope instead of saying, you know what? We gotta act right. Because first of all, so, let, of so let, me ask, right. let me ask this question: When you say destroy the microscope, what does that mean? That well, basically, you're saying that, I mean, okay, just just like you said before, these particular nonviolent offenses, especially when we talk about marijuana possession, we are being incarcerated double, triple the rates of our white counterparts. So the thing is, when you, if you were to decriminalize marijuana, you're taking away that microscope from our black and brown community because now marijuana, just just like prohibition with alcohol, it, the the playing field is level now for the most part. You know, when especially okay, when you think about it in terms of alcohol, so that's well, what you mean by you're taking that microscope away. In my opinion, right. okay. I, unless I miss well, it. Well, we should change the focus. But you said, I, I, I applaud you for getting your life on the right path, but you said something that was that rang dear to me and that touched my heart. You said it was your father that encouraged you to have personal responsibility to take your life and, and, and take it in the way that you wanted to go. And now I applaud you as well for your passion because it's obvious that, that, that you are concerned with the least of these. I get that. Everybody on this phone is. So 
we're going to dial down the tone to where we we stop cussing and yelling at each other so we can have a a, a reasonable conversation. Let me get through a reasonable conversation so our listeners can actually process what we're saying. And when I say, moving back to the original question, when I say what happens to accountability, I believe that each man is responsible for his fate. Um, Despite the circumstances in which he was Born in. I know. I know life is unfair. I know life ain't no crystals that we all know that everybody on this phone, for my estimation, is African American. We we've experienced racism, but we all don't have the same background. And for us who do not have a criminal background, you cannot be mad at us if we don't understand the mentality of someone who ends up in the criminal justice system. And and we and of course we feel that our lives have been different because we've made different choices. And I'm asking you what we should do. Let me get through. I'm asking you, we as those who are on your side, who are saying that, hey, the system is messed up, what should we do outside of those nonviolent, self-medicating offenses? What can we do to bring more justice to the criminal justice system without us denigrating into personal stories and personal insults? So that's my question to both of you, because we only have a couple of minutes left on the phone. Okay. And I don't want to end the phone talking. Right. 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 Uh, I mean, my, my quick response to that is, you know, those things are a byproduct of the fact that we're black. When the police pull us over, they're not pulling us over because we got marijuana on us. They're pulling us over because we're black. And for, unfortunately, we may have marijuana on us. We may have a pistol on us. We may have crack cocaine on us. We may have not have drive on insurance and things like that. So, again, so when you're talking about six, uh, systematic violence and systematic racism, the heart of it is white, this white supremacy of continuing to devalue, attack, and assault black communities, and they're undermining the community through the incarceration. What we have to do, which is begin to build, rebuild our communities. With, uh, you know, men and women coming, you know, particularly like you brothers, man. I mean, I'm proud. I don't know you brothers personally, but I, I'm, I'm happy for you brothers. So I, I wish I could have been in the position you, you are in. Prison became my college. You all didn't have to experience that. And you all shouldn't feel ashamed for that either because we need everybody in our community to, to take part in this war that's, that's uh, upon us. Okay, now what's um, your response? My, Thank and, you, and I, I want to, and I, and I would like to direct this a little bit to the listeners or whoever is listening in on this conversation. I appreciate everybody's voices here. I thank you for allowing me to contribute. Um, I think that very specifically, we need to begin to consider um, what some folks have come to call prison abolition, and, and that simply means a radical rethinking of how we how we do the punishment industry and the punishment system. It's a way of of, of rethinking what what how we respond um, to uh, not just so-called crime but poverty. Why is it that we spend three times as much? on prisons than we do on education. And what I mean by that specifically is that the average we spend per state on a student is $11,000. The average we spend per state on a prisoner is $33,000. That is three times. So I want to bring this to a larger context to also say, what are we doing as a human society when we spend three times as much money on incarceration than education? Right? So I want us to radically rethink about ourselves as human beings, as black folks, and I want us to say we need to begin to start thinking about prison abolition, which means the end of prisons as we know it. 
and we need to have a different response because simply the facts show that it's not working. The prison industry, prison, as my brother uh, Yusef can, I'm sure, attest to, has done more to hurt our community. The black community and our community as a whole has done more to hurt than to help. The only thing that's hurting, hurt, helping are these big corporations that are profiting off of black and brown bodies and poor bodies, too. So we need to radically rethink about ourselves as human beings, and we need to begin to radically think about prison abolition, the end of prisons as we know it. Please, 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 let's all, um, you know, um, just, 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 you know, think about this in a way, not just from our own perspective, but from a personal perspective. Because, honestly, mm-hmm. a personal responsibility response is not going to get five or 2.7 million people out of prison. A personal responsibility is not going to get black folks out of economic depression that we've been in the, our whole time we've been here. We have to have a greater response that goes beyond personal responsibility, that speaks to the systemic violence and injustice that is attacking us. That's what we must do, and that's my claim, and that's my plea. That's a great ending to the show. Um, I wanted to add, uh, if anyone wants to get involved, if this is a uh, subject that you're compassionate about, there's a couple of different organizations that you could get involved with. The campaign to end the death penalty, you could Google this. I'll probably put it on the chat when we finish this conversation. Uh, Campaign to end the new Jim Crow, um, formerly incarcerated and convicted people's movement. Um, again, this has been, in my opinion, I'm so glad and, and welcome now for and Yusef Shakur. Thank you. And the, Thank in you, my Yusuf. opinion, and, uh, team is Stephen Reese and Taekwon Thank Edwards. you, guys. Thank guys. Thank you. And uh, the other portion of our team, I want you guys to stay tuned for what we're doing next because we will have a um, television segment which will start next area next month in the D.C. area. Um, we'll do a couple of more um, blog talks um, to stimulate and um, educate you guys on different topics that are hot um, or definitely different current events. Again, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad to have everyone on. Um, i got to name the other people on the team, uh, Trelane Patrick, Brandon Andrews, and Terry Jones. Again, thank you guys for tuning you, in to a thanks, in my opinion. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Good night. Right. Have a good thank night. You all